0: ...witnessing a front three-quarter view of two adults sharing a tender moment. Hello, and welcome to Front Three-Quarter View, my Twin Peaks podcast. My name is James, and today I'm going to be talking to you all about the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice... ...and tying it all into a music video. This podcast was recorded last year... Uh, unfortunately, I don't have time to record a brand new podcast this week, um, but I have got lots of new ones planned and on their way over the coming weeks. But Uh, This podcast was recorded last year. It wasn't widely released. It was only released on Mixcloud. So this will be the first time that it's been on Spotify and iTunes and Google Podcasts and all of those places. So if you didn't catch it on Mixcloud, I'm really, really excited to present it to you. I'd also like to very quickly apologize for the audio quality of this new introduction. Uh, I'm having to record it on my laptop microphone, which isn't quite as good as the microphone I usually use, Uh, but the introduction's not very long, and you'll be able to hear the podcast using the proper microphone in about two minutes' time, so bear with me. It feels like a weirdly sort of prescient time to be re-releasing this podcast because, um, well, there are a few reasons. So this podcast talks quite a lot about the end of the return, and... Uh, It was a three-year anniversary of those episodes being aired this week. So it feels like a very appropriate time to be putting this out. And also the music video I talk about, the band um, whose music video it is, have released their brand new album this Friday. Uh, They're called Hurts and it's called Faith. And it feels nice to be talking about them. They're a band that I really love. Um, and it feels nice to be talking about uh, an old song of theirs on the week that their new music has come out. So there's a taster of their song uh, that I talk about in this podcast at the end. So if you like it, I would definitely recommend looking up Hertz. Uh, that's H-U-R-T-S as opposed to the sound hurts. So I'm going to leave you now with James from the past. Uh, to talk to you from just over a year ago, so there might be a couple of references um, that don't quite fit in with the podcast that have just been released or the the timescale, but um, they were quite hard to edit out. So this is a this is a relic, if you will, um, from last year. But I've really really enjoyed re-listening to this podcast actually, and sort of discovering it anew. And I really hope you enjoy it because I think it's something a little bit different and it's something quite fresh uh, and it's a bit of fun as well. And it's quite a fun and informal look at uh, Twin Peaks and a Greek myth. So I will hand over now to Past James and I hope you enjoy. This is future or this? I firstly just want to start off by saying um, a massive thank you to everyone that's listened so far. I've had over 200 listens on SoundCloud of the five podcasts that I've done so far and um, I know that uh, quite a few people have been listening and subscribing on iTunes and listening on Spotify as well. So I really cannot thank you enough for listening and uh, for letting me know what you think and, you know, for for tuning in every week. Um, I've had some really, really lovely comments about the episode so far and some of the discussions that I've had. And I just wanted to say a huge thank you to anyone that's told me how much they've enjoyed it, uh, anyone that's listened. Um, your feedback, your opinions, your kind of dedication to listening week in, week out, Um, it's it's more than I was expecting, honestly. I thought this would just be a quiet little podcast on the corner of the internet somewhere that might get like 10 or 20 listens if I was lucky. So to have over 200 listens on just one platform over five episodes is more than I could have hoped for. So thank you so much for um, listening and and I'm just so glad that you're enjoying them. Uh, I hope that I will continue to... Um, continue to put out some interesting podcasts and kind of provoke uh, some interesting discussion or respond to some interesting discussions that have already been had. But yeah, today's discussion is a bit of a different one. Um, It's... I don't think it... It it might not necessarily come to a conclusion in the sense that we learn something new about Twin Peaks by the end of it. But hopefully... Um, it will just be an interesting discussion and kind of raise some interesting comparisons and maybe there'll be a few new insights in here as well. So today's podcast is going to be about the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, uh, which I've just realised I've been pronouncing as Eurydice um, in my head. I think it's Eurydice. I will also be talking about a music video, which I'm pretty sure is inspired by Orpheus and Eurydice, um, and then kind of using both of them to shine a bit of a light on Twin Peaks. Um, so I am really interested in kind of myth and Greek legend and things anyway. Um, and I'm also really interested in how different kind of aspects of pop culture can influence kind of your reading of something. So talking about a Greek myth and talking about a music video in light of Twin Peaks, I think it's kind of a perfect example of um, the way my head works. I think what with this and last week's Secret History podcast, um, you're getting a good insight into my my kind of analytical, critical um, brain when it comes to Twin Peaks. So the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, um, really, really condensed version that I've just kind of taken from bits of Wikipedia, um, Orpheus and Eurydice fall in love, um, Orpheus is a musician, he can play beautiful music on a lyre, um, and they they fall in love, and it's all very nice and very happy and he woos her with his lute playing, um, is it a lyre or a lute? I've written both in my notes, it's a lyre, I think it's a lyre. Um, so he blows her in with his lyre playing, um, and then Eurydice dies. Um, Either after being chased by a shepherd who was beguiled by her beauty, or dancing with nymphs. Um, She was bitten by a snake uh, in the story, and so she goes into hell, or the underworld, and Orpheus goes down into hell. Um, He charms Cerebus, um, which is the three-headed dog, um, with his lyre, slash lute, still think it's lyre. And then he, he plays a bit for Hades, god of the underworld, and hades um likes what he hears so he says eurydice can leave hell with orpheus um as long as he doesn't look back at her so he can he must leave hell walk back towards the normal earth um and she will follow him but he has to trust that she will follow him um because if he looks back she will fade away ...into the underworld and be trapped there forever. Uh, So he can't look back at her. But she follows him as a shade, so she doesn't make any noise. He can't hear her footsteps. He loses faith. He looks back, and then he sees her getting pulled back into the shadows of the underworld. Um, Now, there is a really obvious comparison to that in Twin Peaks, which some of you may have. It may have sparked off something, um, and I'll get to that in a minute. But the music video um, that is based on that story, or that is supposedly based on that story, um, is by a band called Hertz. Um, They're a British band from Manchester, Uh, it's two guys, and their song Sunday, um, the music video is not on their YouTube account anymore, but it was re-uploaded in not amazing quality by someone else, but it is on YouTube, so I would highly recommend going to watch it. Um so in Sunday, um there is a car crash, um a woman dies, a man the lead singer, Theo, um enters a curiously plastic looking underworld that's really kind of um it's really strangely lit. It uses um some like Egyptian I think it's Egyptian kind of imagery. Um it's it's kind of all like everything is kind of wrapped in cellophane um it's kind of everyone's in this like brightly colored translucent plastic um and he kind of appears dressed all in white in this strange corridor and in the music video he goes down um to this kind of red space um the woman who is dead is sitting there she's wrapped up in some kind of cellophane cling filmy material um or wrapped in plastic um the um, guy who was the driver of the car is sitting there playing the piano, as played by the guy that plays the instruments in the band. Um, and he um, agrees silently to like, kind of nods, I think. He's got tape covering his mouth, I think, and I think he nods. And, um, and this woman is allowed to follow Theo out of this weird place. Um, but in the music video... Um, it cuts it keeps cutting back to the scene of the car crash, and the woman kind of in them leading his arms, and the driver is kind of watching them and is clearly a bit of a shady character and He presses a button on his lapel and that makes a door close in the underworld, and the door is reflective, so the woman tries to cover Theo's eyes, but it doesn't she can't do it in time. he's already seen her, and she goes kind of stepping backwards into the underworld and he loses her. So I did not make the leap that this was inspired by Orpheus and Eurydice. Um it was a YouTube comment on the original video many many years ago um around 2013 14 when I first got into the band um must have been 2013 I think. I uh, it just I mean it to me it makes perfect sense that may not have been what was they intended with it but that seems to be the kind of interpretation that fits it most well. Um So that's kind of interesting in the sense it expands the story a bit and it just, it will add some kind of other interesting dimensions and elements to the discussion of what this story could maybe tell us about Twin Peaks. So obviously there is a kind of immediate um, similarity and if I've missed any or if you're thinking of a different immediate similarity to me, then please do let me know. Um, I'll mention my Twitter handles at the end of the podcast um, and you can tweet me and have a little chat about um, Orpheus and Twin Peaks. But my interpretation is obviously that Orpheus is Cooper and Eurydice is Laura Palmer in part 17 of The Return. Kind of building on what I was talking about last week, week before last, um, in my part 17 and 18 podcast Um, where you have, um, she, Cooper rescues Laura from her Fire Walk With Me scene, and they walk through the woods. He can look at her, and he keeps looking back and checking on her and taking her hand, but there is this definite element of, he is saving her from death. And they are walking towards, there's a shot that cuts away to the White Lodge, the entrance to what we assume is the White Lodge, um that 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 similarity is there they're walking towards the light, some kind of salvation um he is literally leading her away from her death. she doesn't go and meet Leo and Jacques, so she can't be killed and I mean that that to me was like well, obviously that's the the idea of kind of looking back isn't quite the same, but this idea of saving someone leading them out of a kind of hellish space is obviously. Um, there's there's definitely similarities there. But also, it's kind of similar to when Cooper goes into the Red Room, um, or the Waiting Room, or the Black Lodge. Um, There's a whole podcast in whether what we should call them. Um, I know Lynch specifically calls it the Red Room. It's identified as the Waiting Room, and it's kind of Co he is kind of coincidentally identified as the Black Lodge within the series. Um, kind of like by inference rather than anything else. But um Coop goes into the Red Room to rescue Annie at the end of season two, and there is no moment necessarily where he takes her hand, where he tries to save her, where he has to kind of leave without looking at her, but It's interesting when he's in there that he sees Caroline... ...the only woman aside from Annie... ...presumably that he's really been in love with... ...except maybe Diane. Um, And he... ...he sees Annie and then she turns into Caroline... ...and then Annie's in Caroline's dress... ...and she's in Caroline's dress... ...when she's removed from the Red Room. So there's clearly a blending of these two personas... ...of these two women that Cooper loves. And it kind of made me think, well... What if he can only save one? And again, in true kind of end of the return style, he actually fails to save. Well, he he seemingly fails to save either because he leaves on his own and then Annie just is there with him in Glastonbury Grove. So she's safe. He has succeeded. Or maybe the Red Room kind of spirits have just let her go. Because she's not saved. They're both changed by the experience. So although kind of in the myth, Eurydice is taken completely back into the underworld, you could definitely argue that Annie's spirit or soul um, is very much still in the Black Lodge, Um, as is Cooper. Cooper is still in the Black Lodge as well. So in this version, neither of them um, escape. And it's interesting that she does blend in with Caroline and that Um, And Bob is kind of... Bob takes Wyndham Earl and then kind of... I think he says you can go to Cooper. Um, And so it's almost like they're letting him... They're letting Cooper leave. But the Black Lodge tricks him because the moment Cooper leaves, his doppelganger comes in. And then his doppelganger chases him out and catches up with him and actually swaps places with him. And... It's it's the fact that the Black Lodge is, is so capable of playing tricks. It blends Annie and Caroline and it it kind of lets Cooper go out but then also still says there's someone that's going to chase him and ultimately doesn't let him leave. That kind of r- reminded me of a later part of the Orpheus story. Um, he later tr- tries to go back into the underworld again to be with Eurydice. I believe, as I read it on in the internet... Um, The Muses, I think it's the Muses, it might not be the Muses, but um, his head, Orpheus's head, is kept in the underworld so it can sing and entertain them. Um, And I, the the thing I mentioned in my part 17, 18, or maybe even my season 2, the thing I mentioned in one of my previous podcasts was... What is Cooper actually doing in those 25 years? Because the thing that always confuses me is that um, I've just finished reading the final dossier again, so there'll be a podcast on that coming soon as well. Um, And I'll talk about it in a bit more depth then. But Jeffries doesn't age, as far as we know. Briggs definitely doesn't age. We know that. And and both of, you know, Briggs certainly is jumping between portal and portal. And Maybe he's not been there for that long. Maybe because they're timeless, he can step out into any time. Um, but Cooper is actually in the Red Lodge. The Red Room and the Black Lodge have now combined and become one. Um, Cooper is now actually in the Black Lodge. So he's there for 25 years. He doesn't have... it's it's It could be a timeless space, but he is not timeless within it. And everyone else ages as well, like the spirits age and Laura Palmer ages. And I know that's just because they filmed it 25 years later. But like that, that that that's canonical now, that you age in the Black Lodge. And even in his original dream, um, in the pilot version, it's marked as 25 years later. But he is undeniably older and he's aged up and he's given wrinkles. And so we know that he can be you can age within the red room so what what does he actually do there for the 25 years that he's kept there because it's almost like a kind of minimum sentence it just seems like such an i mean i suppose that's kind of 25 years is roughly the sentence you get for life isn't it um but that doesn't quite carry into working out why you would have 25 years in the red room um Is that just the way it works? Is it just the way it works for Cooper? Is he there for that amount of time for a reason? Because it's simply not his time to come out yet? Um, That's kind of what's implied, I think, the latter. But I was kind of wondering if the Orpheus, kind of his head being kept to provide entertainment, gives us another extra possibility, that Cooper is there for the spirit's entertainment for 25 years. You know, it's absolutely fascinating for me to try and work out why he's there for that long and what he does in that time so you know is is he there for their entertainment that's a that's an interesting little thing to think about um, so those kind of theories or those comparisons move away a little bit from telling us about well they They move away a little bit from the kind of looking away aspect of the Orpheus story. Um, And the Sunday video by Hertz um, focuses hugely on that element. Um, The lead singer enters this weird underworld space um, via mirrors. And there are mirrors hanging up at the crash site. And there's a road sign that reads backwards, don't look back. And obviously can only be read in a mirror. Um... So the the kind of the symbolism of mirrors is is hugely there and used at the end of the video. Um, this idea of looking back is really important, and if we stay with mirrors for a second, um, on reading John Bernadie's, um five-part electricity nexus theory, um, he kind of theorized. This is going to be a really bad summary but he kind of theorises that season three is set within this in-between space between the real timeline and what he calls lodge space. And that the kind of the the middle point between these timelines or these universes or existences is a mirror. And the mirror is the key that reflects um, Bob. It reveals Bob in both Cooper and Leland. And so the mirror is this kind of bridge gap and it's interesting that it's used in that way in the video as well. Obviously, this this video came out in 2011. The only thing you could probably say that makes it Twin Peaks like uh, deliberately is that the woman that they go into rescue is wrapped in plastic. And in a later Hertz video, um, lights in 2015 or 16, um, there are various figures from history on the dance floor of this club that the lead singer is in. And one of these figures is Laura Palmer, wrapped in plastic, dancing on the dance floor. So there is a clear kind of Twin Peaks imagery is something that does come into Hertz's work. Um, and I thought the wrapped in plastic image in Sunday was really interesting. But if we take the mirrors from that video and we kind of extrapolate outwards, and we continue to explore this um, kind of idea of seeing and not seeing and why that's important for Twin Peaks, then um, this is actually what prompted this podcast, and it reminded me of the Orpheus myth when I read it. Um, in the uh, five-part John Bernardy electricity nexus theory, he talks about um, the end of the final dossier and how Tammy says... Um, that the only way we can defeat evil is by looking kind of hard into it and by never looking away. And um the article talks about it in reference to Sarah Palmer and trying to understand her. This might actually be from a different article. I've read so many articles this week. Um but uh it's the same author, but this um there was an article about Sarah and Bob and kind of Leland and Judy or and kind of the relationship between those characters. But uh, the quote from the article is, I've heard it mentioned on multiple podcasts that specifically in reference to the Woodsman's poem, the white of the eyes are revealed when you look away. The look away stuff from Tammy may be the official metaphor of the final dossier and possibly season three. When she writes, how easy it is to quit, give up, lower our eyes. Look what happens to anyone here who lost the fight. I can't help but think she's talking about Sarah. Those quotes are really useful for kind of exploring this idea of seeing and unseeing and when you should and shouldn't look back Um, because this idea of looking away and that thing about the woodsman and the white of the eyes is seen when you look away is so interesting in relation to Twin Peaks because the whole thing is built on this idea of this town who have always looked away from problems. And I said this way back in my Nostalgia podcast as well, that the town didn't really acknowledge Laura Palmer's problems or want to acknowledge them until she was actually killed. And and Bobby comes out at the funeral and says, hey, we're all responsible for this. So the idea of looking away is kind of this intrinsic um idea in twin peaks and it's also a real negative for tammy from this outsider perspective looking on the town she's kind of approaching it and saying this is not the way you do things this is not a healthy you can't the only way you can stop evil is by looking at it by staring into it by not looking away from it um so that i was i was reading that and i was thinking about orpheus and This kind of made me think, well, Coop is trying to bring Laura home to stop Judy slash Sarah, two birds, one stone. So I wondered whether, I've written the notes, Sarah looks away when the rest of us would look back. So Sarah kind of has looked away from what's been going on in her home. She has either inadvertently or deliberately not acknowledged it. She is either oblivious to it or willingly oblivious to it. Does it... Is there something to be said for the theory that Sarah is also capable of saving Laura? Because this whole time, and by this whole time I mean when Laura was alive... Sarah has been looking away from Laura's trauma and what's going on under her roof, but if she had looked at it, if she had stared at it, would Leland's evil have been stopped? Would Bob's evil have been stopped earlier? Now, obviously, that's an unfair burden to place on Sarah Palmer, but is there something to be said that Maybe if she does do what Tammy says, if she does look and acknowledge the evil, even if it's not that evil, and it's an, it's another sort of evil, it's acknowledging that she's been taken over by Judy, or it's acknowledging that some of the evil is now in her, or if it's kind of accepting the evil that's gone in her house 25 years before, if there is some kind of acknowledgement of looking the evil in the face, would that mean that the evil could somehow be undone? Or would that would that kind of be Cooper's end point that maybe the two birds with one stone is Laura is brought home to stop Judy. Sarah, by facing the evil that's taken over her, by facing the evil that killed her daughter, she finally saves Laura and Laura comes home again. Is Sarah the one that's capable of saving Laura? But she's been lost to Judy by this point, because we kind of we know that Laura or Carrie is taken to the home to stop her being killed and to save Sarah. What if Cooper doesn't know that? What if he's only I mean, that maybe isn't entirely likely, but what if he's actually trying to save Laura And bring her home by making Sarah confront something that she's never had to confront before. Maybe Cooper's plan is kind of, when read in that light, it's more realistic, if that's the right word, um, than kind of his plan just being read as, oh, I'm going to save Laura and then everything will be fine. Which is, as I've kind of discussed before, hugely naive. So that's a really interesting thing. And Sarah is really interesting to me anyway, and I'm kind of slowly building up a Part 8 theory relating to Sarah that will manifest itself in some way at some point soon, I'm sure. Um, But Sarah is is a fascinating point within Twin Peaks, especially the return, and I can't quite understand what's going on there. I tried to work some of it out in my Part 17, 18 podcast, but... Maybe there is something to be said that, you know, she is the one that could save Laura's life as much as Carrie is now being brought home to save her, really. Um, that's an interesting thing to think about. There's also this idea of seeing and unseeing within the myth that if you see something, you lose it. So if you look back... Um, Although I suppose there's there's another point to be made there about if you look back like nostalgically, you lose something that you had, you know, and maybe that's a great metaphor for Lynch and Frost's approach to nostalgia in Twin Peaks. If you try and recreate that, if you look back at season one and two too much, you would only create kind of a pale imitation, a shade of it, and you would not you would not have the same series, you would have one that wasn't as good. So it's only by creating something original and using nostalgia in a different way that you can really kind of bring Twin Peaks to life in the way that The Return did. So that's a side note that just, like, struck me there. But, you know, if if there is this idea that you look back and you lose something, and by, by seeing you lose something... Um, I kind of continued with that line of thought and thought, well, if you see something and lose it, does that mean if you give into temptation? So if you're tempted to look back at Eurydice because you don't trust that she's there and then by looking back, you lose her in the first place. If you give in to that temptation of looking, you then lose it. What can that tell us? And I was like, well, actually, that tells us loads of stuff about pretty much every romantic relationship in Twin Peaks. James and Donna give into temptation after Laura dies, James goes off. Ed and Norma give into temptation when Nadine gets hit on the head or um oh no, she tries to kill herself and then she loses her kind of memory and then she gets hit on the head and then she comes back. Ed and Norma are together during that period and then all of a sudden they're not. Um because she comes back. So they they take they give into temptation and they lose it. Cooper and Diane. You know, given to temptation in the return, Diane leaves. You know, they they have sex and then the next morning things are different. Diane is gone. You know, even Douglas Milford, who is my fave after the Secret History, even Douglas Milford and Lana, Douglas Milford in the final uh, in the Secret History is kind of having this one last moment of happiness, and you know he always gets married, but. It's interesting that kind of after the episodes in The Secret History, it's acknowledged that this is like his final shot at happiness. Douglas Milford getting married to Lana is almost like giving into one final temptation and then it actually kills him. Even Dwayne Milford and Lana. Dwayne then gets together with Lana and then Lana leaves in the final dossier. Um, So it's amazing how that kind of thought can trace through so many relationships within the season. I mean, if you look at Shelley and Bobby... They give into temptation because Laura isn't necessarily kind of in the way. Whatever order that relationship happened in, whoever was with who first, um, because Laura is not there, the relationship continues and then they break up. That's a really interesting kind of perspective just into how kind of relationships are written within the series Um, that offers a really kind of different view of that. It's just fascinating to me how, I suppose if you take the shape of any story, it will have a lot of accidental similarities to a lot of other stories. And if you take the motifs of particularly an ancient story, and you kind of trace the repetition of those motifs throughout all of art and creativity and drama, there are so many similarities to that. But it's interesting how many kind of new theories it's, or even just kind of thoughts that it's inspired or triggered within me, just the idea of this myth and what this myth is saying and what Twin Peaks is saying that's similar. And I think it's really helped me look at certain aspects of the show in a different way. And, of course, you have the more surface comparisons where a lot of the time Coop is an Orpheus-like figure where he is leading women to safety And somehow it never goes right. It always goes wrong in some way. Something is always lost or left behind. And that really ties into this idea of Cooper being this kind of... um, In some ways, kind of archetypal kind of figure in the sense that he's very kind of heroic, um, very questing. um, But then also kind of he's, he's an untypical hero in kind of how unassuming he is as a person. Um, And how unlike a kind of standard male protagonist he is. But it's fascinating that he falls into this floor of becoming this kind of white male saviour, which I've talked about a bit before. And I think you could definitely say he's this kind of Orpheus-like figure um, throughout the series. And I think the similarities with the Sunday music video are just a lovely little kind of cherry on top addition um, and and beautifully kind of Lynchian and Twin Peaksian in their own sense as well. Um, for a later podcast, I'd actually quite like to do a, um, a little thing on music videos and Lynch and Twin Peaks. That might be a lot of fun. So that might be coming soon. But thank you very much for listening. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the most rambly of podcasts yet. Uh, next week, I will probably be talking about the final dossier. So uh, I hope you look forward to that. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you again for your commitment to the podcast, for your really, really kind words. It really does mean the world. And please tell everyone you know who loves Twin Peaks to have a listen. And hopefully they might find something within this that they pick up and, you know, run with as well. Um, There's only so far you can go in kind of half an hour podcasts about really detailed stuff. Um, whether that be a Greek myth or the show itself. Um, But hopefully I've kind of said a few interesting things and triggered a few interesting thoughts. And I will see you all next week.